quite literally the number of sensations that the human body can experience, the number of symptoms that the human body can produce is actually relatively finite. The ideologies of those sensations or symptoms, the causes of those sensations and symptoms are virtually infinite. So the simplicity is that when we can perceive that gesture within the sensation, we can recognize how are these events intersecting with the body. And we can recognize patterns within that and predictable outcomes, even though they inherently express unpredictability. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Brant Stickley is a renowned practitioner and educator of Chinese medicine and, in particular, Shenhammer pulse diagnosis. In this episode, we drop deep into the heart of pulse diagnosis as Brant shares subtleties of the pulse and insights into the incredible information that can be gleaned from this ancient art. He has worked closely with Dr. Leon Hammer for 20 years and is considered an authority on the model of Chinese medical psychology developed by Dr. Hammer. Brandt has relentlessly pursued a synthesis of classical Han and Tang dynasty herbal medicine and acupuncture, Chinese magical medicine, philosophy and religion, with concepts of psychosomatic medicine, body-oriented psychology, neurophenomenology, process-oriented philosophy, imaginal, integral, and consciousness studies. He strives to bring all these disciplines together as a clinician, teacher, writer, and speaker. Brandt is an assistant professor in the College of Classical Chinese Medicine at the National University of Natural Medicine. He has been a visiting professor at Pacific Rim College for more than a decade and is a senior instructor and board member of Dragon Rises Seminars, where he teaches Shen Hammer pulse diagnosis. If you are a practitioner of Chinese diagnostic techniques, you will not want to miss a beat of this conversation. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Brant Stickley. Brant, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thanks, nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's been a long time as we were just reminiscing. I, I actually don't know when. Do you recall when it was? Uh, like I would six to, to eight years? Probably eight, yeah. Yeah, wow, About okay. that much. Yeah, well, we've spent... Uh, a number of meals together anyway it's mm-hmm. in victoria when you've come up to teach at the college i've always enjoyed our time getting to getting to know one another and getting to learn from you you are a foremost expert in chinese pulse diagnosis is that a correct way to say it uh that's fair enough <laughs> <laughs> you're better coming from you than me <laughs> but it's definitely the I would say the one thread that's really carried through my entire career and has been really the thing that has, the deeper I've gone into my study and my work with, with Shenhammer pulse diagnosis, the more it's connected me to a wider world within Chinese medicine. And it's connected me to, it's shown me ways of seeing and perceiving as an acupuncturist and it's shown me it's what led me to study the Shanghan moon more closely simply because it affords such a direct and profoundly complex and yet utterly simple perception of what's going on in the body mm-hmm. and when you know that sounds a bit paradoxical but one of the strengths of the system is that it's based on it is that the Shenhammer pulse diagnosis has a nomenclature based on sensation. And when we recognize sensation in terms of, in terms of the physical body, right? That quite literally the number of sensations that the human body can experience, the number of, um, 
symptoms that the human body can produce is actually relatively finite. The, the etiologies of those sensations or symptoms, the causes of those sensations and symptoms are virtually infinite. Okay. So the simplicity is that when we can perceive that gesture within the sensation, we can recognize how are these events intersecting with the body. Okay. And we can recognize patterns within that even though and predictable outcomes, even though they inherently express unpredictability. Hmm. Thought-provoking. I think we will do some revisiting of that as we go along here. Pulses are something that are known and used across probably most forms of medicine. And allopathic mm -hmm. medicine practitioners check the pulse. In Chinese medicine, we read the pulse. What's the difference? Well, in the simplest terms, now in this, in this day and age, I would, I would suggest that in, in modern conventional medicine practice, it's a question of rate and rhythm. And it's probably for most practitioners limited to the question of rate and rhythm. Um, Perhaps there's, an, perhaps there's an awareness of the significance of force as well, but those are quite limited parameters. And in fact, the, the profundity, the depth of those, of those simple things, like simply the rate, has an, the, the rate alone has an incredible depth. If we go beyond the quantitative counting of beats. We can track that to the state of the sympathetic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system and the interaction of sympathetic, parasympathetic, simply, simply by examining the rate. And we can, we can recognize ways that that changes over time. We can understand then how remotely some influence came into a person's experience or how, or how closely to the moment in time. All that's reflected in the rate. Okay. We're feeling for parameters which are, again, gestural a question of movement and direction and therefore we consider we take into consideration rhythm rate depth width length superficiality and depth Te um, texture texture shape yeah all these all these factors and when you are typically in Chinese medicine, when we're reading the pulse, what pulse, what area on the body are, are we referring to? So normally referring to the radial artery and, okay. and the Shenhammer system is, uh, is focused on the, the radial artery at the okay. wrist. At the wrist. Right. And yeah. you mentioned the Shenhammer system uh, a few times. Can you, Expand on that a bit. Sure. So my main teacher, mentor, Dr. Leon Hammer, um, was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst and studied the beginning somatic psychologies all before studying Chinese medicine. So he came into the study of Chinese medicine as a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And um, he had the great fortune of encountering Dr. John Shen, who was um, an expat from mainland China and had traveled through Taiwan and Southeast Asia before coming to the United States and then became a, a pretty well-known um, practitioner of Chinese medicine in the United States, a very influential practitioner. Well, what, what Dr. Shen was carrying with him was a, 
a tradition of pulse diagnosis, which had been passed down through a family and through a lineage that's come to be known as the Menghe Ding lineage. And through the Ding family, which uh, Dr. Shen was married into the Ding family, in my understanding. And so this was a, um, Menghe is a, is a region, Ding is a family name. Other families involved with the same lineage were the Fei family and the Ma family. Um, this is all detailed, really, in Volker Scheid's book, Currents of Tradition in Chinese Medicine, um, which, is a, a, which uses that lineage as a model to explore what, what, what is a lineage and how is a lineage constructed and what are the factors that influence the development of something that we can call a lineage. So within that, the pulse system was one thing that was handed down that was that Dr. Shen brought with him in his move to America. Dr. Hammer then studied with Dr. Shen for many years, right up until Dr. Shen's death in the early 2000s. Um, and then Dr. Hammer set out to write a book about pulse diagnosis. And his my understanding is that his idea about that was that he would gather his notes from his time studying with Dr. Shen and put out a book. And when I started studying the pulse in 1998, it was in that, that, that text was in manuscript form and you got a binder with the pages in it. Uh, and so 12 years after starting that book, um, it was published as contemporary Chinese pulse diagnosis. And at the time it was at the time, Dr. Han that, book of Dr. Hammers was the longest English language book on the subject of Chinese medicine. All so right. it was a monumental project. Um, and he had also developed a way of teaching the pulse, which was really profound insofar as he had been the recipient of a master disciple kind of transmission. And I would say that he really strongly horizontalized or democratized that process developing a way to teach groups as opposed to single people and finding a way to bring that, that development of, of intricate tactile sensitivity um, beyond the scope of just beyond the scope of just a master disciple transmission and into a truly educational model. Mm -hmm. And how did you end up crossing paths with Dr. Hammer? I attended, uh, I went to school at American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine in San Francisco. And I am, I had an, I had amazing teachers there. And amongst them was Dr. Robert Johns, who probably was one of the greatest influences on my whole career, I would say. Um, his book, The Art of Acupuncture Techniques is, is a wonderful a wonderful text, incredibly clear and well-written and, and full of depth. And I was fortunate to start studying acupuncture. You know, he was my first acupuncture teacher. And one of the things that he said was, learn how to diagnose. And if you want to learn how to diagnose, the Shenhammer pulse diagnosis is a great, is profound. And you should dedicate yourself to it. And at that time, my first pulse teacher was Brian LaForgia. And um, he was traveling, if he had been practicing, in, Brian LaForgia had been practicing in, this, in the Bay Area for probably 25 years at that time. He was one of the first, first um, American-born and trained acupuncturists, I think, practicing in uh, the Bay Area. And... Uh, he had moved to Tasmania and was coming back to sit to the Bay Area a couple times a year. And so when I learned that he was going to be offering classes, I jumped on the opportunity and uh, threw myself into it. Yeah, I was I was I was uh, at first 
at first quite overwhelmed and felt like maybe I didn't have the, the, the attention span or the capacity to feel pulses as it, as I was learning them. And on his, on Brian LaForge's second visit back to the Bay area, I signed up for one intermediate class with the understanding that if I came out of that three day class, not feeling more confident that I would pursue something different. And luckily for me, in the course of that three-day treatment, I had the first of the many profound aha experiences that are typical of students of the pulse, yeah. which is just connecting a sensation to, uh, to something in a patient's history so directly and perceiving that so clearly. I was sold. And I signed up for every other class. Oh, that's great. And if we can stay there for a moment with this aha moment, it is something, as you said, that so many practitioners experience. The pulse diagnosis is so exciting. I'm just wondering if we can bring it to life a bit with some of your aha moments and some of those experiences. Because, of course, some of the listeners have no idea what type of information and depth of information that we are able to ascertain from simply mm-hmm. feeling the pulse. So if you don't mind touching on that, maybe sharing some of your direct experiences with some really, maybe some of the more profound ahas that you've, you've had. Yeah. So a, a good way to look at this is that first we have qualities that we feel over the, over the large segments of the pulse. And that includes simply the first impressions of the pulse that includes recognizing a wave in the pulse. Um, The waveform is one set of findings in the pulse that are relatively, uh, relatively simple, simply because you're feeling them over the whole pulse. They have a very distinct shape. They're describing a very distinct movement and shape. And the waveforms that we identify in the system are limited to five basic waveforms. So it's a good laboratory to explore your one's capacity for feeling them because this, you know, the set is limited, but within that we can find quite profound information. So an example of that is we have a pulse called the hesitant wave, a wave called the hesitant wave, which, simply strikes the finger all at once. It feels like rather than having a smooth waveform with an arrival and a, and a peak and a departure, it just simply all strikes the finger simultaneously. And because it doesn't have that gradual buildup and that gradual descent, it also feels very sudden. And because it feels very sudden, it also feels very hesitant in the sense that it's waiting, 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 and then bam, it strikes your finger all at once. So this is a displacement of, we could say, a displacement in the pulse sensation of force upward, directly upward. This correlates to a pattern of overuse of the mind. Dr. Shen would call it the mental push pulse, meaning that a person is generally you know, all the way from on a continuum from perfectionistic to truly obsessive compulsive, a span of a span of patterns of attention and focus and thinking obsessively, kind of almost monomaniacally on a single subject will produce that quality in the pulse. And being able to parse that simple thing out and to perceive that directly and then to see that as a window into a person's, into into how the patient experiences the world is just a profound, a profound, very simple, yet very profound piece of, of awareness. 
And that's the type of thing that creates that first aha moment. And then once we see that, then we see how that's reflected in the rest of the, in the rest of the person's experience and then how that generates symptoms for them, how they're, that generates behaviors and then how those behaviors can generate symptoms. So that's an example is just feeling that. The other one is another common example is when we move into individual positions, we look at that through the lens of Chinese medicine, the set of functions, the natural functions of those organs. And we can see that within that certain systems within the body are more vulnerable to certain kinds of insults from outside, right? So the lungs as associated with the breath are more susceptible. They're this most sensitive organ. They're susceptible to changes in the environment, but our heart is the seat of emotion and the seat of awareness and the seat of consciousness. And so insults at the level of the emotional life or the psychic life, or the psyche are visited upon the heart and are, are, and it is, as they say, the body remembers. And in this case, the heart is what remembers. And so we can find qualities in the heart pulse in which we feel in the left distal position, the, the, the left hand position closest to the wrist that suggests that a person's experienced some kind of overwhelming experience which has caused their heart, if they're in a vulnerable state, can cause their heart as if its function collapses and it becomes impermeable to influences from outside. So that's a kind of self-protective mode, a drawing inward of the awareness that's reflected physiologically in a in a kind of drawing in of the circulatory function that we attribute to the heart. So the, 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 the centrality of the heart in the entirety of the cardiovascular network submits its influence to the furthest reaches of that, to the furthest reaches, the arterioles, and to the, the point of transfer for oxygen and neurotransmitters and hormones, everything that's mediated by the blood can be subtly impeded by emotional insults that are affecting the heart by ultimately crushing its capacity to reach out into the furthest reaches of the body. So mm -hmm. what follows from that, right, is an inhibition of the expansion, quite literally the inhibition of the expansion and contraction of blood vessels throughout somewhere in the body as a ripple resonating through the cardiovascular system of an inhibited function. And what might you experience in the pulse? So precisely what we experience in the pulse is that as we, as we, as we press deeper into that position, we encounter what we call a flat pulse. And that's a pulse where contrary to our ex expectation of movement, we feel a flat, condensed sensation without a waveform that feels like, I will almost jokingly say, like a piece of, like a piece of, of, um, of rubber from a tire on the side of the road, or like a dead woodchuck. I don't know if you use the word woodchuck in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly know in the New word York, woodchuck. <laughs> I grew up on the East Coast in Maryland, so I don't know <laughs> if I've ever seen a woodchuck, but I certainly have heard of the legends of the woodchucks. What does a dead woodchuck feel like? <laughs> <laughs> well, I spent my first five years on a farm, and uh, and... As it happens, there would be dead woodchucks in front of our house. Like people would just drive because anyway, that's a, that's a, that's a whole long story, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a liveliness to it. Let's it. just say it feels like a piece of, of, uh, of, uh, like a piece of rubber. So it's flat, it's dense yeah. and it's at the bottom of the se of the area where you can feel the pulse. Okay. I got to stay here for just a second out of personal curiosity. What is a woodchuck? I'm realizing now I don't even know what it is. 
Right. Uh, there's another word for the woodchuck. Um, a woodchuck is also known as a what's Puxatani Phil? A groundhog. Groundhog. A groundhog and a woodchuck are the same thing. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. I can see one in my mind's eye. Yeah, a woodchuck and a groundhog, I believe, is yes, is the same thing, and it's a it's a large rodent. Okay, cool. That's a tangent. We don't need to go further down. Okay. It's actually a large <laughs> rodent. <laughs> anyway, sorry for the, the it's deviation. The year of the rat. We're in the year of the rat, so metal rat. So yeah. So it's a bit of a lifeless pulse that you're feeling, very flat, and right is is that a a clear sign of this or does it just give you as a practitioner a sense of where an imbalance may be well so that's a very clear sign and it's okay. a very clear sign of just the, the the process that i went into greater depth describing is what follows from a state in which it is as if the function, the circulatory function of the heart or the circulatory function that we could equally attribute to the pericardium is diminished in the okay. sense that it's because of that lifeless quality, it's not transmitting outward. Okay. Nor is it capable really because of its density of accepting resources from within. So uh, imagine a state in which, in which it's as difficult to access resources for the, for feeling it's equally difficult to access feelings of safety from one's resources as it is to transmit those and to feel that safety permeating the body and that draws in on one level, circulatory function, and on another level, nervous system function, which are all things that we can perceive very directly. So, so in answer to the original question, one of the great aha experiences is to feel that quality and to recognize the, 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 the repercussions of that, but to feel it very directly and to simply to be able to identify that over the course of you know, which is a state which may have persisted for a patient when they see you for decades. And when you feel that, do you then bring it to the attention of the patient to get confirmation? And if so, how would you go about wording that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And um, so I would, I consider one of my greatest areas of study to be what we could call a trauma-informed approach. And so how we speak about these things is significant, is incredibly significant. And that starts by creating a safe container for this type of inquiry. And that starts with, you know, it all starts with consent. And so that starts with establishing consent to encounter a patient in that depth so a patient knows what is potentially present within a pulse within the practice of pulse diagnosis and you know we're there in a common purpose the patient and practitioner are there in a common pur purpose and if we meet in that place then we can speak openly and freely within a safe container and so if I feel a quality like that, we're going to go through that in the context of simply doing a, a complete, a complete diagnostic questioning, right? Like as we take the history, as we take the case, as we see, we look into the chief complaints and the current complaints, all of those things are, everything's relevant. You know, like we understand that everything is relevant to the whole, to the function of the whole. That's part of the holistic lens that we're using. And so how do we word that? In a sense, we'll say, in a sense, one way to word that, which is safe is to say, your pulse is communicating this sensation to me. And I usually associate that with X, Y, or Z. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And 
in talking with Lonnie Jarrett, who speaks very highly of you, he, I'm just trying to recall what he said, and I, I missed it during the actual interview, and I only heard it when I was listening back through it again, but I believe he said he checks the patient's pulse the first time for 45 minutes. Is, is, how long are you checking a patient's pulse for, especially a new patient? That's a, that's a, well, that's a great question. And um, that varies within, within practitioners of Shenhammer pulse diagnosis. It varies a little bit. And I am efficient. <laughs> so okay. I can do a, I can do a full pulse. I can do a full Shenhammer pulse in, in 20 minutes on a first visit. Okay. Um, and that's, I, I roll that into, when I see a patient for the first time, I'll see them, I'll schedule them for 90 minutes. And within that 90 minutes, we'll have, I'll take the history, read the pulse for 20 minutes or so, and then treat and prescribe and then prescribe a formula. And are you using other forms of Chinese diagnosis, such as tongue diagnosis or as Jason Robertson and C.T. Holman use channel palpation? I am notoriously averse to tongue diagnosis, uh, but I do, I do use it. Um, I use, of course, facial diagnosis, visual inspection, mm -hmm. channel palpation. As far as, as far as that, as far as, you know, developing a plan for treatment, all of that is important. And interestingly, another one of the kind of aha experiences that I've had is to discover that qualities that we can perceive in the pulse will invariably be replicated in the channel associated with that position on the pulse and so an example of that is we have a pulse that's called leather hard and um, that's a sensation like what traditionally is called a gumai, which is like a drum skin, but a drum, a true drum skin pulse, a true gumai is hollow underneath. Imagine if you took a piece of hardened dried hide and inserted that into the pulse. And so as you're pressing down through the vessel and the sensations in the vessel, you feel this wider, harder, resistant, tense, but wide sensation. That's called a leather hard pulse. And it's really a sign of, in its most basic form, it's a sign of tissue damage. And in particular, it can be tissue damage from radiation, it can be tissue damage from profound levels of overwork of a system. And so I've discovered that when I feel that in the pulse, like let's say I felt that in the right middle position, which is associated with the spleen and stomach, if I palpate, if I palpate the antique points, what are called the antique points below the knee on the st stomach channel, I will replicate that. I will find a place in those channel that replicates that sensation. Hmm. And that's part of the way that I will, that's part of the way that I will work with the, the channels is to transform that sensation. When you find that place that replicates that, is that indicative of a local disorder or imbalance or is that based on the point and the type of point and where that may be uh, kind of portraying information about a different area of the body so like everything and like everything in Chinese medicine it can be both it can be either or both and so it okay. can be local it would have a local representation and that would and we could surmise from that uh, more organ level and tissue level phenomena distal to the distal to that location. Okay. And in fact, we can extrapolate from all of those things. Okay. And I just I just have to go back a step and ask, why are you averse to tongue diagnosis? Um. Simply because, in my estimation, 
Um, I'm not, it's, I, I say that joking, really. I'm not really <laughs> averse to it. It's just that I'm not really averse to it. It's just that I can, I feel like I can learn so much from the pulse, from the synthesis of the pulse and the history. And it's very rare for me, it has been very rare for me to find any more significant information via the tongue okay. than I can discern through the pulse and through palpation. Oh, that makes sense. Then. And so, yeah. like I said, I want to be efficient. I want to be as efficient as, efficient as I can. And so I'll mm -hmm. look at tongues. I look at tongues at least a couple times a year. <laughs> uh, and I'm much more likely to do things like look at, the, look at the mucosa under the eyelid or, you know, things that have been transmitted through the lineage like that than I am to really look at the tongue. That's not normative for the majority of people, even yeah. in Shenhammer, like, it's just an idiosyncrasy. Yeah. What is neurophenomenology? <laughs> uh, to change gears. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if we are because I don't know what it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so neurophenomenology is a term that's really derived from uh, the work of Francesco Varela, who was a neurophenomenologist, and um, that what that means. So he was a neuroscientist, and who he was a who worked with another another um, co-wrote a great book with an author Maturano, um, Umberto Maturano, it, who brought to bear the philosophical system of phenomenology which was the art main architect of which was Edmund Husserl and, and was developed in relation to the body more fully through Merleau-Ponty. So Varela brought this model of phenomenology, which in simplest terms could be said, could be described as attending to the things themselves and brought that to the exploration of the functioning of the nervous system. And so neurophenomenology is looking at the functioning of the, ner of the nervous system as the thing itself and how that relates to our experience of the world, ultimately how that relates to our experience of the world. And from that, from that model, the term, the term sympoesis was coined. So sympoesis is a way to describe something that we can recognize from within Chinese, Chinese, really ancient Chinese philosophy or classical period Chinese philosophy, which is zuran, which is spontaneous, spontaneous generation. Right? Everything, everything emerges into being spontaneously in self-organizing patterns. So neurophenomenology is, a, is, is, in a sense, a way to describe how do we perceive the self-organizing functioning of the body physiologically. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can see that is maybe a bit of a diversion for what we are talking about. Well, in a sense, yes, but in a sense, no, because that's simply... You know, pulse. It's it so happens that pulse diagnosis is a way, is a profound way of examining the functioning of the nervous system and yeah. the, in the context of the whole organism. It, it with immediacy, mm -hmm. with with total immediacy. Okay. So in your practice with your intake and your pulse diagnosis what then how are you providing therapy for your patients is that through acupuncture and herbs primarily yeah okay both both okay and yeah and i saw in your bio something called chinese magical medicine what is that uh, yeah Oh boy. Uh, 
So I didn't have to dig very deep for it. It's right there in your bio. I know you don't. It's not like it was like searching hard. Yeah. Um, well, so Chinese magical medicine. I could give you an example, which is is basically recognizing that at its root, recognizing that at its root in the earliest Chinese texts, like there's a great text. There's a great text called Early Chinese Medical Literature by the Sinologist uh, uh, Donald Harper. It's Early Chinese Medical Literature, and it's actually a book of magic. Hmm. Um, and that means magic is not some new, you know, magic is not some kind of like Harry Potter thing. Magic is the recognition of patterns in nature and how there are resonances between resonances and correspondences. The, through the manipulation of those resonances and correspondences, we can create changes in physical matter. Okay. So the entire system, the, you know, the entire physical body is a meaning-laden set of signifiers with, with symbolic potential. The, the elaboration of all of the five phase and six confirmation descriptions of aspects of physiological function are all symbolic at their root. And that means that if we understand how those resonances interact, we can perceive with really direct, we can perceive really directly how that will move out into the world and influence, influence things beyond the scope of the simple physical body. So an example of that is a patient comes in and um, they're saying, I have innumerable, innumerable examples of it, but one of my favorite examples is a patient comes in and their complaint is that they're, you know, they're incredibly stressed. In fact, they were under so much stress at, in the moment that they came in that they were kind, almost having a hard time explaining their state. And they went into a, into a, almost like a monologue that ultimately led to the root of their a brief monologue that went almost to the root of their concern, which is basically, I'm a filmmaker. I have a, I have a script. I have everything I need except for the money to make this film. And I don't want to have to work some kind of a job selling shoes to j make that money. I, I need to find a way to, I need to find a way to secure those funds. And I also don't want to submit to the pressure of my mother who's urging me to marry for money in order to get that money and I'm not going to go down that route. This was like the, this was like what she was saying. So I was like, okay, you need money. <laughs> so my response to that is, okay, hop up on the table, right? When someone's in a, going into a monologue, the proper response is, okay, hop up on the table and let's see what we can do. So, you know, I did a treatment basically on metal channels using the stomach channels. The stomach yang ming are associated with metal and they can also be associated with earth. So that's about how the earth is about how we receive. The stomach is about how our hunger goes out into the world and both of those can be translated into, um, you know, transpose that onto the need to take in resources so that to fulfill her desire to produce this thing and put it out into the world. So we work with the stomach channel. That's the, the basic transformation that the stomach enacts in the body. Talk about magic is that it takes some physical matter from outside. You ingest it and that turns it into essences and substances, which are then transmitted to your body and then become part of your flesh, right? If that's not magic, if that's not alchemy, yeah. Nothing's alchemy. So the bottom line is I do the treatment. She 
we finish the treatment, she gets off the table. As she's opening the door to leave the treatment room, her phone rings. She answers the phone, and it's, it's, a, it's a grant writer contacting her and saying, I've heard about your film. I want to write a grant. I want to help you secure the funds to make this film. <laughs> of course that happened. <laughs> right. So yeah. one way Incredible. to term that would simply be synchronicity. Yeah. But if you want to have more fun with it, call it magic. Yeah. Yeah. And that magic that you were talking about ingesting and, and becoming part of the flesh, is that was that herbal medicine that you were referring to? Or was that the energy of acupuncture? Well, when I say that, I'm saying on a fundamental level, that's every, every, everything we eat. Everything mm -hmm. we eat becomes, in a sense, a part of our flesh through the machinations of the spleen and stomach in our body. Yeah. How much more so is that true of herbal medicine, where herbal medicine, you know, the difference between the difference between food and medicine, there's a fine line oftentimes between food and medicine, between spice and herb and medicinal. That's a that's a that, those things, those substances all exist on a continuum. But each one of those exerts creates a, a, a movement in the body or a gesture in the body. And all of life, all of, the, all of the movements in life also admit of those same gestures and those same qualities of movement. And so, yeah, in a sense, we can supply with, with a formula, we can supply the precise, the precise impulses that a pa that a patient needs that then set become part of their being and then reverberate out into the world. Mm -hmm. Such a fascinating concept fields and the whole paradigm of medicine for Chinese pulse diagnosis, a student of Chinese medicine, how long might they expect to need to study the pulse before they've developed uh, let's break it down into first uh, just a proficiency that they can use in their clinical practice and then going along the continuum to a more expert level. I like to say that a person can reach get, within the system as we teach it. Um, within the system as we teach it, I would suggest that a person with dedicated study can reach a high degree of proficiency within a year. It's not, it's not uncommon to encounter, yeah, it's not uncommon to encounter people making statements such as, you can't master pulse diagnosis until you've been practicing for 10 or 20 years. years and people say, <laughs> yeah, right. And it's like, I, I completely disagree. I completely disagree. The problem with students of pulse is not, is almost never that they can't feel enough. It's that they don't have signifiers for what they feel. Mm -hmm. They don't know what to call the sensation that they feel. And they, beyond that, don't know what its significance is. Right. I, one of my, what, one of the things I, I enjoy the most is not taking a student who's new to Chinese medicine and, and teaching them Shen Hammer from the beginning, although that's awesome. That was my experience, and that's an awesome way to learn it. There's never a time that's too early to start learning the pulse diagnosis. But what's really also satisfying is to take a practitioner who's been in practice for 30 years that comes to take a class and to demonstrate to them, oh, here's this sensation. We call it this. And from their perspective, they're like, I've felt that so many times in my career and I didn't know what to call it. And therefore I ignored it or I didn't know what to do about it, but it felt important to me. And now I know what it is. Right. So like they felt the dead woodchuck and just didn't know what the dead woodchuck meant. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and are there 
techniques or tricks to gaining that proficiency beyond just repetition and hopefully having a good teacher? Do you, like, for the fable of feeling the pee under the mattress, do you feel different textures under different layers to try to develop the sensitivity? Or is it strictly pulses, pulses, pulses? Well, the so the most efficient thing is pulses, pulses, pulses. And another part of that is ultimately the basic function that we're describing is the capacity for focused attention and developing one's facility with focused attention is paramount. So meditation is probably one of the single most important corollaries to becoming adept at pulse diagnosis. Simple, you know, and that, and the, the forms of meditation are manifold. So it's not like there's a prescribed one, but the capacity to place one's awareness to place one's attention at the tips of the fingertips tactily is something that's developed through learning how to understand the rea- the interaction between attention and awareness in other contexts. Okay. And what does, speaking of meditation, and if that is a, a crucial part, what does your spiritual practice look like? <laughs> Uh, or some parts of it, Brent. <laughs> yeah, uh, my spiritual practice involves uh, seated meditation, prayer, um, yeah, basically that. I mean, like, I've done, I've worked with, I've worked with Theravada monks, I've done Theravada meditation, insight meditation, I've been meditating for 30 years, you know, it's like, Mm-hmm. So I've I've done a lot. I've 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 had Tibetan teachers, Dzogchen teachers. I've had Tibetan Dzogchen teachers, Nyingma teachers, um, Zen teachers, Shingon Japanese esoteric Buddhist teachers, um, Quakers, Sufis, <laughs> like. Uh, a wide range. You name it. Yeah. A wide range. But ultimately that comes down to, ultimately that comes down to there's, there's meditation, which is an interoception, and there's openness to inspiration and openness to revelation. And there is the offering up of prayer as a bare, you know, as a, as a, as a, a, a bare interaction with all that is. And mm-hmm. so most iterations of, you know, one of the most basic things you can say is that um, the, po- the poet Gary Snyder has written about this, that it appears to him that the fundamental, the fundamental drive of meditation may have very well arisen out of the need of the hunter to be perfectly still and concentrated in kind of, you know, like Neolithic hunter gatherer models. So there's that need to be perfectly still and, and yet perfectly aware. And then there's also the act that's, and that's appropriate to the hunter. And then there's also the gathering, right? And so there's the process of collecting things, Gathering is the process of collecting things. And out of that, we get some practices like mantra practices or prayer practices. The rosary is an example of that. And, and so you, a balance between that kind of stillness and insight and awareness of what's happening in the body, as well as some kind of external, externally, more externally oriented, expressive aspect is equally, are equally one might say universals if we can speak of them to the degree okay. that we can speak of anything as universal. Yeah. And do you find in your practice that anything, any practice before you are doing a pulse reading benefits that or any lack of practice disrupts 
that focus and that meditation on the pulse. Right. Well, so that's what I mean is like one should be, one should be, one should develop the capacity to become perfectly grounded in stillness on a moment's notice and under any circumstances. If your meditation isn't doing that for you, you're not, you know, keep trying. Yeah. When I go to insert a needle, there's a moment that I'm dropping completely into a perfect stillness and then the, the needling arises out of that. And the implications of that are, are extremely important. And I also have to go into that with the same degree of attention to feel the pulse as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And during that 20-minute pulse reading that you're doing, do you sometimes drift out of that state and find yourself distracted and then have to bring yourself back in? Or are you so dialed in that you can just go into that state and stay there for the, the duration? That varies. Mm -hmm. That varies. And under those circumstances, also one has to ask a question about something that you're feeling, you know, just to query what you're feeling. Um, writing it down, it's also, you have to, you know, we're doing, we're doing, in Shenhammer, we're writing down a lot of qualities comparatively to what the norm is. So there's that aspect of it. But within that, those basic parameters, I can easily sustain that for 20 minutes. That's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you grew up on a farm on the East Coast. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, upstate Where, New York. New York. So how did a farm boy from upstate New York get interested in Chinese medicine? Well, I would, I, I don't think I could, I don't think I could. My father was like a gentleman farmer who, okay. who not a, not a, not a farming farmer. Um, <laughs> well, how did it come I, Really? So, okay. So how did Chinese medicine come into my life? Chinese medicine came into my life because after midway through my undergraduate career, is when I really discovered meditation. And so I kind of pivoted from English language and comparative literature into Asian studies and had the good fortune of studying a lot of, taking a lot of courses on Buddhism. And in particular, like my favorite of those was this course on the Thai forest tradition. And then I was working in the library after I graduated for some time prior to marrying my wife the following September, I was working in the library. And one of the things that I did in that library was move the entirety of their, they have, at, at, I went to Cornell University and they have one of the most profound East Asian collections in the United States. And oh, really? in the context of my work there, I basically moved the entirety of their East Asian medical text holdings into um, a storage facility. So that was like one of my jobs was moving that. And somehow that, somehow that led me ultimately, after going to UC Berkeley to study classical Chinese, I received acupuncture for the first time. And I had such a, it was such a profound breakthrough for me that a year later I wanted nothing other than to become an acupuncturist. And I realized that all of these aspirations that I had had were could potentially be fulfilled through a life of service enacted in the practice of Chinese medicine. And that's what I pursued. And so you're now practicing in Oregon, correct? Mm -hmm. And are you currently seeing patients? Because uh, I know you also have a very busy teaching and travel schedule. Yeah. Um, so I, I reserve two days for private practice. And I have a variety of supervisory positions through the National University of Natural Medicine's College of Classical Chinese Medicine. So I have observation shifts where students observe me doing the treatment. I have what we call clinical mentoring rotations where I'm very closely overseeing the student conduct the interview. So it'll be a group of a few students and I'm very vigorously supervising it and having them do the treatment under my direction and providing input as they're doing it in the process. And then I have internships where I supervise interns and then that's, you know, into the deep end. 
right. for them. And then I also I also maintain a private practice. And are you is there anything in particular that you are really excited about right now that you're studying that you're working on any projects? Well, I am supposedly writing a book <laughs> <laughs> about all of the I'm supposedly writing a book about all of the things that we've been talking about. In particular, you might have also noted in my widely disseminated bio that my goal is to establish Chinese medicine as a robust anti-psychiatry. And okay. um, my primary focus is on unveiling the salutogenic and non-pathologizing models that I see nascent within normative classical Chinese medicine and helping them to find expression in the management of the suffering associated with what is labeled mental illness in modern society. Okay, so if I'm hearing you with psychiatric, which is based on labeling, you are uh -huh. you are tapping more into the roots of, of your experience in Chinese medicine to be able to find alternative ways to to manage patients' mental emotional health. Is that kind of a summary right. of that? Okay. Yeah, that's correct. It's also a question of the exclusive use of pharmacology in the management of psychiatric conditions. So yeah. an anti-psychiatry is one that looks beyond the management with medication and chemicals and yes. notions of me mechanistic and chemical perspectives on behavior and sees them in social context, sees them in community context, sees them in family dynamics, sees them in natural function. Right. So it's a more integrated approach where we're not just providing that pharmacological agent, which is not actually bringing about any sort of cure or healing. It's just basically creating a dependency on that chemical agent for in perpetuity. And as opposed to that, we're, that's one way to say it. You're bringing in the more energetic and healing approaches of Chinese medicine. Right. And that's, and, and just for clarity's sake, it's not to say that I'm, I'm against by any means the use of medication in general mm -hmm. or, or explicitly, but the system itself the system in which that is deployed and the hegemony of that model is what we're calling into question. Right. And given that the success that we can find in from within Chinese medicine in these conditions is quite profound, it's a great challenge to that hegemony. Mm -hmm. It offers yeah. a great challenge to that hegemony. And how is the supposed book writing coming along? Are we going to be expecting anything book from writing. you? I couldn't say, I couldn't go that far. It's like a lot of the material, all the materials present and it's like gets diverted at this point, it's being diverted into, into PowerPoints, which can be used to teach remotely, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of material. Right. Well, as you said, it took your mentor, Leon Hammer, 12 years for his first book. I know it took Lonnie Jarrett 20 years each for two of his books. So it's, <laughs> right. a, it's a process. <laughs> I look forward yeah. to seeing whatever maybe comes along. And uh, where can people learn more about you? Where can they connect with you potentially? Uh, well, the easiest way, of course, is um, brantstickley.com, www.brantstickley.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at stylostixis. And uh, on Facebook, but the website has a blog that's randomly updated and also an events page. You can see, you can learn some of the, some excerpts from papers that I've written are on the blog that go into some of the topics that we've discussed, um, providing some of the, some of the philosophical framework. There's some poetry on there. Um, so it's all good. Expect the unexpected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've always enjoyed the time we have spent over the years. Hopefully, we'll get you back to Pacific Rim College at some time in the near future. You've been a great asset to our community, 
and so many of your colleagues are speaking extremely highly of you and your contributions to the profession. So thank you for your dedication to, to your art and to the medicine and what you're bringing to the world. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And I love Victoria <laughs> and I love Pacific Rim. Great. Well, we hope to have you back soon. And thanks for taking the time today to do this podcast with me. It was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Brand Stickley. If you want to learn more about Brandt and his work, visit brandstickley.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-T-S-T-I-C-K-L-E-Y.com. We hope to have him back to Pacific Rim College for a workshop in the very near future. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, Pacific Rim College's School of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine is a leading school in Canada offering three, four, and five-year programs. Enrollment spaces do fill quickly, so apply early to avoid disappointment. Visit PacificRimCollege.com for more. If you are looking for online education in Chinese medicine, explore the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, try to zoom out on distractions and zoom in to your heart.